At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. While we prepare to welcome 2020, we take some time to reflect on the past year. This week, we listen back to some of the most memorable episodes from 2019. This is Florida Matters 2019 Year in Review. We start with Dr. Jamie Ellis, a professor of entomology and director of honeybee research at the University of Florida. I asked Dr. Ellis about the controversial role that pesticides play in bee mortality. Well, you've raised the most controversial issue in our business, the impact of pesticides on bees. If you if you follow the news, you're going to see pesticides discussed for lots of reasons. You know, reason number one, it's just one of the things that people love to hate. Reason number two, when you screen honeybee colonies, you actually find pesticide residues in them. Logically, it makes sense when you're exposing bees to all these compounds, they would be causing issues. The trouble is, is that science is having very difficult times reproducing the impacts that some are claiming is happening. There's no doubt that pesticides kill bees every year, but the vast majority of these deaths are due to exposures that never should have happened in the first place. Perhaps the label wasn't followed when the pesticide was applied. Maybe the bees were moved in too late or too early. So generally speaking, pesticide labels are developed in a way that when followed appropriately, it minimizes the impact of collateral damage, including damage to pollinators. So a lot of the impacts that people are saying uh, are, are happening to bees are hard to reproduce in the lab or in controlled studies. So we've got this idea that pesticides are driving it, but we don't have the data to support that generally. So, of course, you, you might ask me next, then, well, then why did Europe ban the use of certain compounds? And I would say, you know, a good part of, of their reason for doing that was just public pressure. When, when you hear the scientists talk, they, many of them didn't support the ban. Now, of course, there are scientists who, who adamantly believe that pesticides are the driving impact on bees. Some of this becomes a chicken-egg argument. For example, we know that pesticides can cause the death of cells in the honeybee's stomach, the midgut. So when we're seeing something that we recognize as a nutritional deficiency, is it a nutritional deficiency? Or did they get exposed to sublethal doses of, of pesticides, which led to this nutritional deficiency. And that's where the science is at, at the moment, trying to figure out these possible synergisms. So what about, there are bees that are native to Florida? There's about 320 species of bees in Florida. And of those 320-ish, only one of those is the honeybee. That means we have 319 or so more species of bees. Some of these are introduced, but the vast majority of them are native. Bumblebees, carpenter bees, sweat bees, and leafcutter bees, etc. All bees are important pollinators of something in the environment. So that might be uh, native plants that produce berries and fruit, etc. for wildlife, but it also includes agriculture. There's plenty of native bees that are important for the production of human food. So I want to ask you about growth in Florida. We're having 
you know, a boom, a population boom. Here's something from one of your publications that I found. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, while many plants are acceptable pollen producers, very few yield enough nectar to produce a surplus honey crop. Those that do generally are indigenous to Florida and may be in danger of being lost to urbanization. So do we have to worry we're cutting down too many of our indigenous plants and that that could also be maybe contributing to the poor nutrition. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things that would, would I think, amaze most people in the general public, if you think about the names on honey jars, there are very few that are actually agricultural crops. Now, we live in Florida, so people are instantly going to throw citrus at me, mm -hmm. but they won't be able to name another one, gallberry, palmetto, Tupelo, mangrove, all of these things are native plants. The, the vast majorities of honey produced in the United States are produced from native shrubs or trees, not agricultural crops. So honey production is very dependent on the existence of these wild, unmanaged patches of native plants. A lot of these honey sources might be very susceptible, especially due to urbanization or disease or pest spread. So absolutely important that we manage these. So speaking of indigenous plants and non-indigenous plants, the Brazilian pepper plant has become really important to beekeepers. So how does that, the tension of that work? Because I know ecologists are trying to get rid of that. Wow, you're asking the million dollar question that can do nothing but get me in trouble. So <laughs> you of course recognize the issue that we have Brazilian pepper in the state of Florida. So Brazilian pepper blooms in August and September. It is unquestionably the best nectar source for honeybees in South Florida. It's so good that beekeepers move their colonies to it from other areas of Florida. Why is that good for bees? If, if beekeepers keep bees elsewhere, they often have to feed their bees so the bees can store enough honey to survive winter. Well, Brazilian pepper will feed bees for you and give a surplus of honey that bees can, beekeepers can harvest and sell. It's not a particularly good tasting honey, so we call it baker's grade. It's the kind of thing that would show up in honey buns or honey nut Cheerios, stuff like that. Nevertheless, it's extremely important to beekeepers. But as you have recognized, it is an incredibly invasive, destructive, terrible for the environment plant. So as a result, the University of Florida, the Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services, the USDA, et cetera, have had scientists who worked on Brazilian pepper control. Uh, very recently, they uh, released an insect that they hope stunts or slows the growth of Brazilian pepper. So, you know, I'm kind of sitting between two worlds now where beekeepers are really up in arms that they're about to lose one of their most important honey crops. And of course, everyone else in the state who would want an invasive species eradicated so that the native species can benefit. So it's definitely a, a tricky situation. I mean, the way that we're talking about it now is there's no indication that the releases of insects at the moment are going to eliminate Brazilian pepper overnight. We think it's going to be a very slow decline. I've seen numbers 10 to 15 years before we even start noticing measurable decline. Nevertheless, the, the sales pitch to beekeepers though is that when this stuff disappears, it's going to open up habitat for a lot of our other native plants that can come back and, and serve as floral resources. Now, the real trick is the benefit of Brazilian pepper is not that it produces nectar, it's when it produces nectar. So a lot of beekeepers will hear us say, 
you know, there will be other things that grow in this place that produce nectar, but many of them consider that of no benefit to them if it doesn't produce nectar in fall. That was Dr. Jamie Ellis, professor of entomology and director of honeybee research at the University of Florida. Moving from bees to love bugs, we hear from Dr. Phil Kaler, endowed professor at the University of Florida who specializes in urban entomology, and Steve Fuse with pest control company Truly Nolan's Port Ritchie office. I asked Phil to tell us the story behind love bugs. Yeah, love bugs are something that come with us every year. And they are actually a fly, and they are a tropical species that do not extend too far north. So a lot of people from up north that move down here to Florida haven't ever experienced anything like driving down the road and having your windshield covered over with flies that you hit as you're going along. Yeah, they, I guess it's a little freaky. I get, You know, those of us who have grown up here, it's just something that kind of comes and goes. I remember bad outbreaks years ago, but I don't remember anything this bad for for several years. What happened this year was actually a result of what happened last year, which was that we had a very wet year last year, and that meant that the larvae that feed on decaying grass clippings, like along the sides of the roads or in pastures, can grow really well. And so what we have now is a generation that survived through the wet season last year and are coming off in huge numbers. As a matter of fact, I had my house painted this year, and those love bugs are attracted to fresh paint because there are UV retardants and they're attracted to the UV light that reflects off of a newly painted house. And so they're attracted to the car fumes along the sides of the road. So they stuck in your paint? (laughs) The paint was dry, thank goodness. I had large numbers of, of love bugs just covering over my house this year. So I knew this was a really bad year. All right, let's move on to termites. Termites have been swarming. Uh, I've heard from coworkers. I know myself. You see these, they kind of look like flying ants, like big flying ants swarming around. Mm-hmm. Steve, which termites do you have to be worried about? Which ones maybe you don't need to worry about that they're destroying your house? You have to be worried about all termites, whether they're subterraneans or dry woods. Right now we're in dry wood swarm season. We're kind of getting ant swarms at the same time. So we're getting calls that you know my house is loaded with termites. We get there and we find that they have an ant swarm. Best way to tell would be with a termite swarm. The the wings are usually about double the length of the body, just as a quick look. Now, I know that I had a swarm called a pest local pest control company, Mm -hmm. and they told me that I didn't need to worry about it, that I just need to sweep up the termites. These weren't the kind that would really destroy my wood. All termites are going to eat wood and do damage to your house. It's usually about an average of about seven to $8,000 before you know that you have them. The hardest thing to do is convince somebody that they need to be proactive instead of reactive as far as getting a preventative treatment. Um, but no, you do need to worry about all termites. Subterraneans tend to eat wood a lot faster because they're traveling up and down mud tubes and there's larger colonies. Dry woods tend to eat a little bit slower, but they're all going to do damage to your home. Uh, Dr. Kaler, is there a particular kind that we should worry about? Well, termites are going to eat on a house 24 hours a day, all days of the year. So a large termite uh, colony 
in someone's house can eat a pound of wood per day. So it's important to keep a handle on what's going on in your house from the standpoint of termites. And of course, most people find out they have an infestation when the termites swarm. We're also dealing with invasive termites that have been brought in from other countries. And you folks down there have Formosan termites in the, in the Tampa Bay area. This is a swarming season for them as well as dry woods. They've been the longest down in Hallandale, Florida, which is down by Fort Lauderdale. They've also been for a long time out in the panhandle. Mm-hmm. Out in the panhandle, they're telling me that the average loss for a person would be about $60,000 for every Formosan termite infestation that's found. This is the Formosan termites, I think, is the one, because I did live in the panhandle at one time. Mm-hmm. Those were the ones they told us to really be worried about. Yes, you need to be worried about those. And the problem with Formosan termites and even native termites is going to be the hurricane season. When we have a hurricane come in like what came into Panama City last year, a lot of the roofs came off of houses even though there were hurricane tie-downs because the termites had eaten off the wood that was supposed to hold the roof on. Oh, my God! So the hurricane tie-downs did not work. And we, we even saw that several years ago down, down around uh, Lee County, uh, Fort Myers area, where the roofs came off of the houses uh, because the hurricane tie-downs failed due to termite damage of the wood that it was supposed to be holding. Okay, so can you think of any reason why I might have been told that there was nothing to do about the termite infestation I had or the swarm I had, that it wasn't going to really damage the house enough to warrant tenting the house or something like that? And also another coworker who moved into an apartment building had a swarm, and of course she was concerned about it, and they told her the same thing, that there was really nothing that could be done about it and it wasn't going to cause problems. To me, it does sound like bad information. Um, Depending on the swarm, the only thing that tenting will work for is drywood termites. So if it was a subterranean swarm or a Formosan swarm, it's really not going to help you too much because they're coming up out of the ground, usually in sealed uh, what we call mud tubes. Mm -hmm. That just keeps the moisture because they require a higher moisture content that they're bringing up out of the ground. What do you do about those kinds of termites? Those types of termites, we do what we call a barrier. Okay, which wherever there's concrete around the original slab of the house, we would drill down and then create a barrier or a trench around where your mulch or your landscaping areas would be and flood that with product. Now, if you're on a, a crawl home or a supported slab, then it would require us to drill through the block, what we call angle drilling, so we can hit the dirt that's underneath the slab, the inside of the block, and then the outside. So that way we would take care of subterraneans that way. And then you would just have to replace whatever wood was already damaged. So that's what you do. Many people think that termite control is something that they can handle themselves. They really can't because they don't have the equipment like what Steve has to be able to put put the treatment in the correct location to provide protection of the house. That was Dr. Phil Kaler, endowed professor at the University of Florida who specializes in urban entomology, and Steve Fuse, service coordinator with Truly Nolan's Port Ritchie office. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. We're taking a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Robin Sessingham, and you're listening to Florida Matters. On this Florida Matters Year in Review, we're revisiting some of the most compelling discussions we featured in 2019. 
They've had to battle shark attacks, pollution, massive beach developments, and confusing light sources, but sea turtles are bouncing back. Last July, Florida Matters reporter Kathy Carter toured sea turtle nesting sites with Melissa Bernard, senior biologist with Moat Marine Laboratory and its Sea Turtle Conservation and Research Program. Now, what do scientists have to say about the numbers of sea turtles going up? I think in general, scientists are cautiously optimistic. We know that there are a lot of factors that play into these nesting numbers every year. That's the best way to get an estimate on the population level, but it's still only looking at females, and so we don't know what the male population is like at all. So if there are more females to males, then you're going to potentially get a bunch of infertile nests, which those numbers are not great. And then there's the issue of the the lag time between nest to maturity. And so we're looking at 30 years ago numbers, basically, at this point, um, because that's how long it takes them roughly to reach maturity. So in order for them to be nesting, they've got to be at least 25 to 30. So hard to say what's going to happen in the next 30. Now, even though the numbers are good, what are some of the new issues that are coming up on the horizon that we didn't have, you know, years ago that might endanger the sea turtles and turn this number back around to um, numbers that would, you know, not be good? Yeah, a lot of the issues have to do with the loss of the habitat of the beach, beach hardening and erosion. A lot of people understandably want their homes to stay where they are and the beach in front of it is getting smaller. So when these turtles come back 30 years later to the beach where they thought they could nest, turns out there's just a seawall there or something. Not always, but often they're having to adapt to find different places to nest, which if we keep hardening the coastline, those options get smaller and smaller. So I think that's the newest threat that the turtles can't have a concept of. They don't have that ability to really think logically and find another spot. They just say, oh, this is a seawall. I'm going to lay an egg here. And then, yeah. Additionally, even back a mile from the beach with coastal development, the lights are an issue. Yes, the lights are an issue for the turtles getting back to the water and for the hatchlings getting to the water initially. If the lights are bad enough and the hatchlings all go the wrong direction and none of them make it to the water, then that's as bad as not even having the nest there to start with. Our numbers have been going up exponentially, especially in the last 10 years. So the work has changed in that we can't keep up with the turtles. So we've had to cut back on some of the data for some of the nests in that way. Now, what do you mean you had to cut back on the data? We used to monitor every single nest in its entirety for its whole incubation, but now we're at the point where we're doing a subsample of them. They're all staked for protection, but we're not fully collecting data on all of them because we'd be out there at night still when the turtles start coming up again, so we had to cut back a little bit. Now, back in the 70s, sea turtles were really in critical danger, and sea turtles are still a threatened species. Do you see a time when they might be taken off the list? It is possible. Um, It does have a lot to do with what their population numbers are doing, and the best population estimates come from the nesting numbers. But there are still a lot of threats to them that we can't foresee how that's going to affect. We're losing a lot of habitat, which is critical for their nesting. With global warming, there's a whole how is that going to affect these temperature-dependent animals. And so I think there's still going to be a lot of caution, even though the numbers seem to be increasing. That was Florida Matters reporter Kathy Carter and Melissa Bernard, senior biologist with Moat Marine Laboratory. We know Florida is the home to over 500 kinds of invasive species, but what happens once these animals we call invasive species have been here for a long time? 
I spoke with Todd Campbell, associate professor of biology at the University of Tampa, and John Humphrey, wildlife biologist with the USDA Natural Wildlife Research Center's Florida Field Station in Gainesville. Todd Campbell starts off the conversation. We've recently published an article, well, it wasn't recent, it was back in 2014, showing that the green anole, the native anolis lizard, not only moves up higher into the trees to get away from the brown anole, they actually evolved larger toe pads, sticky sort of toe pads, to deal with the more precarious perches up high where they where they are forced to go now. So Amazing. So, yeah, critters evolve. It's what happens. And so when you have an invasive species that competes with or eats a native that native species is going to have to adapt or it may go by the wayside. It's, it, there's not a lot of cases of species going extinct on mainlands as a result of invasive species, but there's plenty of examples on islands, especially oceanic islands. The most classic example is 11 out of 13 birds on Guam are extinct because of the brown tree snake that was introduced there back during World War II. Yeah, and that is some efforts that our uh, research group has been working on uh, along with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the U.S. Uh, Geological Survey to tackle that problem and uh, have just recently come up with some better solutions for trying to reduce those populations. Which populations are you talking about, John? The brown tree snakes in Guam. Um, our, our researchers uh, out of our headquarters in Fort Collins, Colorado, have over the years tried uh, different types of traps and things to lure them in or or toxicants Uh, and and the thing that they found that worked the best was uh, acetaminophen tablets like Tylenol placed inside baby mice and initially they were putting these in tube traps to lure the the snakes in there and the snake would eat the mouse and then would would go off and die but that was a laborious effort to go and hand place those and so over the years they've developed different techniques and, and have now just They have a helicopter with a delivery system that has all of these little mice with little type streamer parachute sort of things. And the helicopter flies along and just shoots these little guys out of the sky and they fall into the trees and and get hung up with their little streamer parachutes (laughs) and the snakes go find them and eat the mice. And and so it's a tool in in the toolbox of techniques that we're working on to, to help some of those species like the Mariana crow and those things come back. So we were talking about some success, John, that the USDA Wildlife Research Center has had in Guam, but what about in Florida? Well, there there are a few success stories as far as what we all like to look at as, as an eradication of a species, and, and I, I say that with trepidation because it's been what we considered a short time, but there was a, a species of bird that escaped from the Miami Zoo during Hurricane Andrew. It was called the Sacred Ibis. It's from Africa. It looks much like a wood stork, but they're uh, nest predators, and we worked along with the zoo, the Everglades Foundation, and our operational staff to remove those animals. And as of, I think, about five years now, uh, there is yet to be a, a sighting of sacred ibis. So we consider that on the cusp of an eradication. And there's been some headways in other species. The giant Gambian pouch rat was in large numbers down in Grassy Key in the Florida Keys where they had been reared uh, for the pet trade until they were determined to carry, I think it was a monkeypox, that made it less desirable in the pet trade and and were released. Our organization was 
hired by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to tackle that project. Um, we got the numbers down, running approximately 300 traps a day to about two individuals that we were able to radio track to a property that we didn't have access to. And in the interim of trying to get access to that property, the funding sort of dried up and the project had to be suspended. Oh, um, so and, close. Yeah, so close. Mm-hmm. Um, we, another species that we've worked pretty heavily on is a species of the black spiny tail iguana on the Gasparilla Island, where the residents themselves taxed themselves to pay for the services of removing these animals that were eating up very expensive plants and and causing a nuisance. And uh, to date, there's been over 20,000 of those animals reduced. And and this is a population that started with a couple individuals Mm. um, that had been released that were pets. That was Todd Campbell, Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Tampa, and John Humphrey, Wildlife Biologist with the USDA Natural Wildlife Research Center. Florida's coral reefs are in trouble. Scientists say they've been declining for decades, but researchers have very recently come up with some exciting results that they say show promise in restoring these important marine communities. I spoke with Aaron Muller, the science director of the Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research at Moat Marine Laboratory, and Carrie O'Neill, the senior coral scientist at the Florida Aquarium, also known as the Coral Whisperer, who explains just what coral is. So a lot of people think that coral is just a rock or a plant. Um, It's actually an animal, and it it lives only on the about top inch of its hard, stony skeleton made of calcium carbonate that it builds over time as it grows. So the coral actually has little mouths and little tentacles um, and has soft tissue on the outside of this hard skeleton. And they come in all different shapes and sizes and colors, and some are just big mounds, and some are very fine and branching. And all of these coral species growing together are what form the coral reef and form all this intricate habitat for all the other organisms that rely on the coral reef. So take-home message is that corals are animals. Um, Just because they don't have eyeballs um, and they can't, you know, give you a sad little look doesn't mean that they're not alive. Um, And they actually are victims of their own circumstances. Because once they've settled, the very first part of their life, they they settle onto a rock and then that's where they live for potentially thousands of years after that. They can't get up and move away from things that are happening to them. They can't run away. Aaron, but they do live in a symbiotic relationship with plants, with algae, right? And that's what gives them their colors? Yeah, absolutely. Corals themselves, the animals, are often just translucent. You know, so when you're looking at the coral colony, you see a vibrant coloration, but it actually has very little to do with the animal itself. That color that you see, the unique browns and greens and oranges, sometimes even blues are associated with the symbiotic relationship that these animals have with a single cell algae that live inside their tissue. And the common name for that single cell algae is called zooxanthellae. Those little algaes actually provide food for the corals to live through the process of photosynthesis. And the coral animal themselves give the zooxanthellae a home to to live in, and and so it's a form of protection. Um, And so those two organisms live in symbioses together, and, and when that relationship breaks down, that's when bad things happen. That was Aaron Muller of Moat Marine Laboratory and Carrie O'Neill, Florida Aquarium Scientist. 
That wraps up our year in review. Thanks to all of you who have tuned in during 2019 and shared your support with WUSF. You can find all of our shows featured in this episode on our website, WUSFnews.org. Just click the Florida Matters tab. Florida Matters is available as a podcast. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The producer is Christy Oshana. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.